Act Three of The Doctor's Dilemma. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Doctor's Dilemma by George Bernard Shaw. Act Three. In Dubedat's studio. Viewed from the large window, the outer door is in the wall on the left at the near end. The door leading to the inner rooms is in the opposite wall, at the far end. The facing wall has neither window nor door. The plaster on all the walls is uncovered and undecorated, except by scrawlings of charcoal sketches and memoranda. There is a studio throne, a chair on a dais, a little to the left, opposite the inner door, and an easel to the right, opposite the outer door, with a dilapidated chair at it. Near the easel and against the wall is a bare wooden table with bottles and jars of oil and medium paint-smudged rags, tubes of color, brushes, charcoal a small last figure, a kettle and spirit-lamp, and other odds and ends. By the table is a sofa, littered with drawing-blocks, sketch-books, loose sheets of paper, newspapers, books, and more smudged rags. Next the outer door is an umbrella and hat-stand, occupied partly by Lewis's hats and cloak and muffler, and partly by odds and ends of costumes. There is an old piano-stool on the near side of this door. In the corner near the inner door is a little tea-table. A lay figure, in a cardinal's robe and hat, with an hour-glass in one hand and a scythe slung on its back, smiles with inane malice at Lewis, who, in a milkman's smock much smudged with colours, is painting a piece of brocade, which he has draped about his wife. She is sitting on the throne, not interested in the painting, and appealing to him very anxiously about another matter. Promise. Lewis, putting on a touch of paint with notable skill and care, and answering quite perfunctorily, I promise, my darling. When you want money, you will always come to me. But it's so sordid, dearest. I hate money. I can't keep always bothering you for money, money, money. That's what drives me sometimes to ask other people, though I hate doing it. It is far better to ask me, dear. It gives people a wrong idea of you. But I want to spare your little fortune, and raise money on my own work. Don't be unhappy, love. I can easily earn enough to pay it all back. I shall have a one-man show next season, and then there will be no more money troubles. Putting down his palette. There. I mustn't do any more on that till it's bone dry. So you may come down. Mrs. Dubedat, throwing off the drapery as she steps down, and revealing a plain frock of tesori silk. But you have promised, remember seriously and faithfully, never to borrow again until you have first asked me. Seriously and faithfully. Embracing her. Ah, my love, how right you are! How much it means to me to have you by me, to guard me against living too much in the skies. On my solemn oath, from this moment forth I will never borrow another penny. Ah, that's right. Does his wicked, worrying wife torment him and drag him down from the clouds? She kisses him. And now, dear, won't you finish those drawings from McLean? Oh, they don't matter. I've got nearly all the money from him in advance. But, dearest, that is just the reason why you should finish them. He asked me the other day whether you really intended to finish them. Confound his impudence! What the devil does he take me for? Now, that just destroys all my interest in the beastly job. I've a good mind to throw up the commission and pay him back his money. We can't afford that, dear. You had better finish the drawings and have done with them. I think it is a mistake to accept money in advance. But how are we to live? 
"'Well, Lewis, it is getting hard enough as it is, now that they are all refusing to pay except on delivery.' "'Damn those fellows. They think of nothing and care for nothing but their wretched money.' "'Still, if they pay us, they ought to have what they pay for.' "'There now, that's enough lecturing for today. I've promised to be good, haven't I?' Putting her arms round his neck. "'You know that I hate lecturing, and that I don't for a moment misunderstand you, dear, don't you?' "'I know, I know. I'm a wretch. And you're an angel. Oh, if only I were strong enough to work steadily. I'd make my darling's house a temple and her shrine a chapel more beautiful than was ever imagined. I can't pass the shops without wrestling with the temptation to go in and order all the really good things they have for you. I want nothing but you, dear. She gives him a caress, to which he responds so passionately that she disengages herself. There, be good now. Remember that the doctors are coming this morning. Isn't it extraordinarily kind of them, Lewis, to insist on coming, all of them to consult about you? Oh, I dare say, they think it will be a feather in their cap to cure a rising artist. They wouldn't come if it didn't amuse them, anyhow. I say, it's not time yet, is it? No, not quite yet. Lewis, opening the door and finding Ridgeon there. Hello, Ridgeon. Delighted to see you. Come in. Shaking hands. It's so good of you to come, Doctor. Excuse this place, won't you? It's only a studio, you know. There's no real convenience for living here. But we pig along somehow, thanks to Jennifer. Now I'll run away. Perhaps later on, when you're finished with Lewis, I may come in and hear the verdict. Ridgeon bows rather constrainedly. Would you rather I didn't? Not at all, not at all. Mrs. Dubedat looks at him, a little puzzled by his formal manner, then goes into the inner room. I say, don't look so grave. There's nothing awful going to happen, is there? No. That's all right. Poor Jennifer's been looking forward to your visit more than you can imagine. She's taking quite a fancy to you, Ridgeon. The poor girl has nobody to talk to. I'm always painting. Taking up a sketch. There's a little sketch I made of her yesterday. She showed it to me a fortnight ago, when she first called on me. Oh, did she? Good Lord, how time does fly. I could have sworn I'd only just finished it. It's hard for her here, seeing me pile up drawings and nothing coming in from them. Of course, I shall sell them next year, fast enough, after my one-man show. But while the grass grows, the steed starves. I hate to have her coming to me for money and having none to give her. But what can I do? I understood that Mrs. Dubedat had some property of her own. Oh, yes, a little, but how could a man with any decency of feeling touch that? Suppose I did, what would she have to live on if I died? I'm not insured, can't afford the premiums. How do you like that? I have not come here today to look at your drawings. I have more serious and pressing business with you. You want to sound my wretched lung. My dear Ridgeon, I'll be frank with you. What's the matter in this house isn't lungs, but bills. It doesn't matter about me, but Jennifer has actually to economize in the matter of food. You've made us feel that we can treat you as a friend. Will you lend us a hundred and fifty pounds? No. Why not? I am not a rich man, and I want every penny I can spare and more for my researches. You mean you'd want the money back again? I presume people sometimes have that in view when they lend money. Well, I can manage that for you. I'll give you a check. Or, see here, there's no reason why you shouldn't have your bit too. I'll give you a check for two hundred. Why not cash the check at once without troubling me? 
Bless you. They wouldn't cash it. I'm overdrawn as it is. No, the way to work it is this. I'll post-date the check next October. In October, Jennifer's dividends come in. Well, you present the check. It will be returned, marked, referred to drawer, or some rubbish of that sort. Then you can take it to Jennifer, and hint that if the check isn't taken up at once, I shall be put in prison. She'll pay you like a shot. You'll clear fifty pounds, and you'll do me a real service. For I do want the money very badly, old chap, I assure you. You see no objection to the transaction, and you anticipate none from me. Well, what objection can there be? It's quite safe. I can convince you about the dividends. I mean, on the score of its being, shall I say, dishonorable? Well, of course I shouldn't suggest it if I didn't want the money. Indeed. Well, you will have to find some other means of getting it. Do you mean that you refuse? Do I mean? Of course I refuse, man. What do you take me for? How dare you make such a proposal to me? Why not? Fah! You would not understand me if I tried to explain. Now, once for all, I will not lend you a farthing. I should be glad to help your wife, but lending you money is no service to her. Oh, well, if you're earnest about helping her, I'll tell you what you might do. You might get your patients to buy some of my things, or to give me a few portrait commissions. My patients call me in as a physician, not as a commercial traveller. But you must have great influence with them. You must know such lots of things about them. Private things that they wouldn't like to have known. They wouldn't dare refuse you. Well, upon my... Lewis opens the door and admits Sir Patrick, Sir Rafe, and Walpole. Walpole, I've been here hardly ten minutes, and already he's tried to borrow a hundred and fifty pounds from me. Then he proposed that I should get the money for him by blackmailing his wife, and you've just interrupted him in the act of suggesting that I should blackmail my patients into sitting to him for their portraits. Well, Ridgeon, if this is what you call being an honourable man, I spoke to you in confidence. We're all going to speak to you in confidence, young man. Walpole, hanging his hat on the only peg left vacant on the hat-stand. We shall make ourselves at home for half an hour, Dubedat. Don't be alarmed. You're a most fascinating chap, and we love you. Oh, all right, all right. Sit down, any way you can. Take this chair, Sir Patrick. Indicating the one on the throne. Up, see. Helping him up, Sir Patrick grunts and enthrones himself. Here you are, B.B. Sir Rafe glares at the familiarity, but Lewis, quite undisturbed, puts a big book and a sofa-cushion on the dais, on Sir Patrick's right, and B.B. sits down, under protest. Let me take your hat. He takes B.B.'s hat unceremoniously, and substitutes it for the cardinal's hat on the head of the lay-figure, thereby ingeniously destroying the dignity of the conclave. He then draws the piano-stool from the wall, and offers it to Walpole. You don't mind this, Walpole, do you? Walpole accepts the stool and puts his hand into his pocket for his cigarette-case. Missing it, he is reminded of his loss. By the way, I'll trouble you for my cigarette-case, if you don't mind. What cigarette-case? The gold one I lent you at the Star and Garter. Was that yours? Yes. I'm awfully sorry, old chap. I was wondering whose it was. I'm sorry to say this is all that's left of it. He hitches up his smock, produces a card from his waistcoat pocket, and hands it to Walpole. A pawn-ticket? It's quite safe. He can't sell it for a year. You know. I say, my dear Walpole, I am sorry. He places his hand ingenuously on Walpole's shoulder, and looks frankly at him. Walpole, sinking on the stool with a gasp. Don't mention it. It 
adds to your fascination. Ridgeon, who has been standing near the easel. Before we go any further, you have a debt to pay, Mr. Dubedat. I have a precious lot of debts to pay, Ridgeon. I'll fetch you a chair. He makes for the inner door. Ridgeon, stopping him. You shall not leave the room until you pay it. It's a small one, and pay it you must and shall. I don't so much mind your borrowing ten pounds from one of my guests and twenty pounds from the other. I walked into it, you know. I offered it. They could afford it. But to clean poor Blenkinsop out of his last half-crown was damnable. I intend to give him that half-crown and to be in a position to pledge him my word that you paid it. I'll have that out of you, at all events. Quite right, Ridgeon, quite right. Come, young man, down with the dust, pay up. Oh, you needn't make such a fuss about it. Of course I'll pay it. I had no idea the poor fellow was hard up. I'm as shocked as any of you about it. Putting his hand into his pocket. Here you are. Finding his pocket empty. Oh, I say, I haven't any money on me just at present. Walpo, would you mind lending me half a crown just to settle this? Lend you half? Well, if you don't, Blackensop won't get it, for I haven't a wrap. You may search my pockets if you like. That's conclusive. He produces half a crown. Lewis, passing it to Ridgeon. There. I'm really glad that's settled. It was the only thing that was on my conscience. Now I hope you're all satisfied. Not quite, Mr. Dubedat. Do you happen to know a young woman named Minnie Timwell? Minnie, I should think I do, and Minnie knows me too. She's a really nice, good girl, considering her station. What's become of her? It's no use bluffing, Dubedat. We've seen Minnie's marriage lines. Indeed. Have you seen Jennifer's? Do you dare insinuate that Mrs. Dubedat is living with you without being married to you? Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not? Yes, why not? Lots of people do it. Just as good people as you. Why don't you learn to think instead of bleating and bashing like a lot of sheep when you come up against anything you're not accustomed to? I say, I should like to draw the lot of you. You do look jolly foolish. Especially you, Ridgeon. I had you that time, you know. How, pray? Well, you set up to appreciate Jennifer, you know, and you despise me, don't you? I loathe you. He sits down again on the sofa. Just so. And yet you believe that Jennifer is a bad lot because you think I told you so. Were you lying? No, but you were smelling out a scandal instead of keeping your mind clean and wholesome. I can just play with people like you. I only asked you had you seen Jennifer's marriage lines. And you concluded straight away that she hadn't got any. You don't know a lady when you see one. What do you mean by that, may I ask? Now, I'm only an immoral artist. But if you told me that Jennifer wasn't married, I'd have had the gentlemanly feeling, an artistic instinct, to say that she carried her marriage certificate in her face and in her character. But you are all moral men, and Jennifer's only an artist's wife, probably a model, and morality consists in suspecting other people of not being legally married. Aren't you ashamed of yourselves? Can one of you look me in the face after it? It's very hard to look you in the face, Dubedat. You have such a dazzling cheek. What about Minnie Tinwell, eh? Minnie Tinwell is a young woman who has had three weeks of glorious happiness in her poor little life, which is more than most girls in her position get, I can tell you. Ask her whether she'd take it back if she could. She's got a name into history, that girl. My little sketches of her will be bought by collectors at Christie's. She'll have a page in my biography. Pretty good, that. 
for still-room maid at a seaside hotel, I think. What have you fellows done for her, to compare with that? We haven't trapped her into a mock marriage and deserted her. No, you wouldn't have the pluck. But don't fuss yourselves. I didn't desert, little Minnie. We spent all our money. All her money? Thirty pounds? I said all our money. Hers and mine, too. Her thirty pounds didn't last three days. I had to borrow four times as much to spend on her. But I didn't grudge it, and she didn't grudge her few pounds either, the brave little lassie. When we were cleaned out, we'd had enough of it. You can hardly suppose that we were fit company for longer than that. I, an artist, and she quite out of art and literature, and refined living and everything else. There's no desertion, no misunderstanding, no police court or divorce court sensation for you moral chaps to lick your lips over at breakfast. Which is said, well, the money's gone. We've had a good time. That can never be taken from us. So kiss, part good friends, and she back to service and I back to my studio and my Jennifer, both the better and happier for our holiday. Quite a little poem by George. If you had been scientifically trained, Mr. Dubedat, you would know how very seldom an actual case bears out a principle. In medical practice, a man may die when, scientifically speaking, he ought to have lived. I have actually known a man die of a disease from which he was, scientifically speaking, immune. But that does not affect the fundamental truth of science. In just the same way, in moral cases, a man's behavior may be quite harmless and even beneficial when he is morally behaving like a scoundrel. And he may do great harm when he is morally acting on the highest principles, but that does not affect the fundamental truth of morality. And it doesn't affect the criminal law on the subject of bigamy. Oh, bigamy, bigamy, bigamy. What a fascination anything connected with the police has for you all. You moralists. I've proved to you that you were utterly wrong on the moral point. Now I'm going to show you that you are utterly wrong on the legal point. And I hope it will be a lesson for you not to be so jolly cocksure next time. A rot. You were married already when you married her, and that settles it. Does it? Why can't you think? How do you know she wasn't married already, too? Walpole, Riggan, this is beyond everything. Well, damn me. She was married to the steward of a liner. He cleared out and left her, and she thought, poor girl, that it was the law that if you hadn't heard of your husband for three years, you might marry again. So, as she was a thoroughly respectable girl, and refused to have anything to say to me unless we were married, I went through the ceremony to please her, and to preserve her self-respect. Did you tell her you were already married? Of course not. Don't you see that if she had known, she wouldn't have considered herself my wife? You don't seem to understand somehow. You let her risk imprisonment in her ignorance of the law? Well, I risked imprisonment for her sake. I could have been had up for it as much as she. But when a man makes a sacrifice for that sort of woman, he doesn't go and brag about it to her, at least not if he's a gentleman. What are we to do with this, Daisy? Oh, go and do whatever the devil you please. Put Minnie in prison, put me in prison. Kill Jennifer with the disgrace of it all. And then, when you've done all your mischief, you can go to the church and feel good about it. He's got us. He has. But is he to be allowed to defy the criminal law of the land? The criminal law is of no use to decent people. It only helps blackguards to blackmail their families. 
What are we family doctors doing half our time but conspiring with the family solicitor to keep some rascal out of jail and some family out of disgrace? But at least it will punish him. Oh, yes, it'll punish him. It'll punish not only him, but everybody connected with him, innocent and guilty alike. It'll throw his board and lodging on our rates and taxes for a couple of years, and then turn him loose on us, a more dangerous blackguard than ever. It'll put the girl in prison and ruin her. It'll lay his wife's life waste. You may put the criminal law out of your head once and for all. It's only fit for fools and savages. Would you mind turning your face a little more this way, Sir Patrick? Sir Patrick turns indignantly and glares at him. Oh, that's too much. Put down your foolish pencil, man, and think of your position. You can defy the laws made by men, but there are other laws to reckon with. Do you know you're going to die? We're all going to die, aren't we? We're not all going to die in six months. How do you know? This, for Bibi, is the last straw. He completely loses his temper and begins to walk excitedly about. Upon my soul, I will not stand this. It is in questionable taste under any circumstances, or in any company, to harp on the subject of death. But it is a dastardly advantage to take of a medical man. I will not allow it. Do you hear? Well, I didn't begin it. You chaps did. It's always the way with the inartistic professions. When they're beaten in the argument, they fall back on intimidation. I never knew a lawyer who didn't threaten to put me in prison sooner or later. I never knew a parson who didn't threaten me with damnation. And now you threaten me with death. With all your talk, you've only one real trump in your hand, and that's intimidation. Well, I'm not a coward, so it's no use with me. I'll tell you what you are, sir. You're a scoundrel. Oh, I don't mind you calling me a scoundrel a bit. It's only a word, a word that you don't know the meaning of. What is a scoundrel? You are a scoundrel, sir. Just so. What is a scoundrel? I am. What am I? A scoundrel. It's just arguing in a circle. And you imagine you're a man of science. I... 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 I have a good mind to take you by the scruff of your neck, you infamous rascal, and give you a sound thrashing. I wish you would. You pay me something handsome to keep it out of court afterwards. Bibi, baffled, flings away from him with a snort. Have you any more civilities to address to me in my own house? I should like to get them over before my wife comes back. He resumes his sketching. My mind's made up. When the law breaks down, honest men must find a remedy for themselves. I will not lift a finger to save this reptile. That is the word I was trying to remember. Reptile. Tile. I can't help rather liking you, Dubedat, but you certainly are a thorough-going specimen. You know our opinion of you now, at all events. Look here. All this is no good. You don't understand. You imagine that I'm simply an ordinary criminal. Not an ordinary one, Dubedat. Do yourself justice. Well, you're on the wrong track altogether. I'm not a criminal. All your moralizings have no value for me. I don't believe in morality. I'm a disciple of Bernard Shaw. Eh? Bibi, waving his hand as if the subject was now disposed of. That's enough. I wish to hear no more. Of course, I haven't the ridiculous vanity to set up to be exactly a superman. But still, it's an ideal that I strive towards, just as any other man strives towards his ideal. Don't trouble to explain. 
I now understand you perfectly. Say no more, please. When a man pretends to discuss science, morals, and religion, and then avows himself a follower of a notorious and avowed anti-vaccinationist, there is nothing more to be said. Not, my dear Ridgeon, that I believe in vaccination in the popular sense any more than you do. I needn't tell you that. But there are things that place a man socially, and anti-vaccination is one of them. He resumes his seat on the dais. Bernard Shaw, I've never heard of him. He's a Methodist preacher, I suppose. No, no. He's the most advanced man now living. He isn't anything. I assure you, young man, my father learnt the doctrine of deliverance from sin from John Wesley's own lips before you or Mr. Shaw were born. It used to be very popular as an excuse for putting sand in sugar and water in milk. It was sound Methodist, my lad, only you don't know it. It's an intellectual insult. I don't believe there's such a thing as sin. Well, sir, there are people who don't believe there's such a thing as disease, either. They call themselves Christian scientists, I believe. They'll just suit your complaint. We can do nothing for you. He rises. Good afternoon to you. Lewis, running to him piteously. Oh, don't get up, Sir Patrick. Don't go, please don't. I didn't mean to shock you on my word. Do sit down again. Give me another chance. Two minutes more. That's all I ask. Sir Patrick, surprised by this sign of grace, and a little touched. Well... He sits down. Thanks awfully. I don't mind giving you two minutes more. But don't address yourself to me, for I've retired from practice, and I don't pretend to be able to cure your complaint. Your life is in the hands of these gentlemen. Not in mine. My hands are full. I have no time and no means available for this case. What do you say, Mr. Walpole? Oh, I'll take him in hand. I don't mind. I feel perfectly convinced that this is not a moral case at all. It's a physical one. There's something abnormal about his brain. That means probably some morbid condition affecting the spinal cord. And that means the circulation. In short, it's clear to me that he's suffering from an obscure form of blood poisoning, which is almost certainly due to an accumulation of ptomaines in his newsform sac. I'll remove the sac. Do you mean operate on me? Oh, no, thank you. Never fear, you won't feel anything. You'll be under an anaesthetic, of course. And it will be extraordinarily interesting. Oh, well, if it would interest you and it won't hurt, that's another matter. How much will you give me to let you do it? Walpole, rising indignantly. How much? What do you mean? Well, you don't expect me to let you cut me up for nothing, do you? Will you paint my portrait for nothing? No, but I'll give you the portrait when it's painted, and you can sell it afterwards for perhaps double the money. But I can't sell my nuciform sack when you've cut it out. Ridgen, did you ever hear anything like this? Well, you can keep your nuciform sack, and your tubercular lung, and your diseased brain. I've done with you. One would think I was not conferring a favour on the fellow. He returns to his stool in high dudgeon. That leaves only one medical man who has not withdrawn from your case, Mr. Dubedat. You have nobody left to appeal to now but Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. If I were you, Beebe, I wouldn't touch him with a pair of tongs. Let him take his lungs to the Brompton Hospital. They won't cure him, but they'll teach him manners. 
My weakness is that I have never been able to say no, even to the most thoroughly undeserving people. Besides, I am bound to say that I don't think it is possible, in medical practice, to go into the question of the value of the lives we save. Just consider, Ridgeon. Let me put it to you, Patty. Clear your mind of Kant, Walpole. My mind is clear of Kant. Quite so. Well, now, look at my practice. It is what I suppose you would call a fashionable practice, a smart practice, a practice among the best people. You ask me to go into the question of whether my patients are of any use either to themselves or anyone else. Well, if you apply any scientific test known to me, you will achieve a reductio ad absurdum. You will be driven to the conclusion that the majority of them would be, as my friend Mr. J. M. Barry has tersely phrased it, better dead. Better dead. There are exceptions, no doubt. For instance, there is the court, an essential social democratic institution, supported out of public funds by the public because the public wants it and likes it. My court patients are hard-working people who give satisfaction undoubtedly. Then I have a duke or two whose estates are probably better managed than they would be in public hands. But as to most of the rest, if I once began to argue about them, unquestionably the verdict would be, better dead. When they actually do die, I sometimes have to offer that consolation, thinly disguised, to the family. The fact that they spend money so extravagantly on medical attendance really would not justify me in wasting my talents, such as they are, in keeping them alive. After all, if my fees are high, I have to spend heavily. My own tastes are simple. A camp bed, a couple of rooms, a crust, a bottle of wine, and I am happy and contented. My wife's tastes are perhaps more luxurious, but even she deplores an expenditure the sole object of which is to maintain the state my patients require from their medical attendant. The, uh, 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 I have lost the thread of these remarks. What was I talking about, Riggan? About Dubedat. Ah, uh, yes, precisely. Uh, thank you. Uh, Dubedat, of course. Well, what is our friend Dubedat? A vicious and ignorant young man with a talent for drawing. Thank you. Don't mind me. But then, what are many of my patients? Vicious and ignorant young men, without a talent for anything. If I were to stop to argue about their merits, I should have to give up three-quarters of my practice. Therefore, I have made it a rule not to so argue. Now, as an honorable man, having made that rule as to paying patients, can I make an exception as to a patient who, far from being a paying patient, may more fitly be described as a borrowing patient? No, I say no, Mr. Dubidot. Your moral character is nothing to me. I look at you from a purely scientific point of view. To me you are simply a field of battle in which an invading army of tubercle bacilli struggles with a patriotic force of phagocytes. Having made a promise to your wife, which my principles will not allow me to break, to stimulate those phagocytes, I will stimulate them. And I take no further responsibility. He digs himself back in his seat, exhausted. Well, Mr. Dubedat, as Sir Ralph has very kindly offered to take charge of your case, 
and as the two minutes I promised you are up, I must ask you to excuse me. Oh, certainly, I've quite done with you. Rising and holding up the sketchbook. There. While you've been talking, I've been doing. What is there left of your moralizing? Only a little carbonic acid gas, which makes the room unhealthy. What is there left of my work? That. Look at it. Ridgen rises to look at it. Sir Patrick, who has come down to him from the throne. You young rascal! Was it during me you were? Of course. What else? Sir Patrick takes the drawing from him and grunts approvingly. That's rather good. Don't you think so, Lolly? Yes. So good that I should like to have it. Thank you. But I should like to have it myself. What do you think, Walpole? Walpole rising and coming over to look. No, by Jove, I must have this. I wish I could afford to give it to you, Sir Patrick, but I'd pay five guineas sooner than part with it. Oh, for that matter, I will give you six for it. Ten. I think Sir Patrick is morally entitled to it, as he sat for it. May I send it to your house, Sir Patrick, for twelve guineas? Twelve guineas? Not if you are president of the Royal Academy, young man. Would you like to take it at twelve, Sir Ralph? Beebe, coming between Lewis and Walpole. Twelve guineas? Uh, thank you. I'll take it at that. He takes it and presents it to Sir Patrick. Accept it from me, Patty, and may you long be spared to contemplate it. Thank you. He puts the drawing into his hat. I needn't settle with you now, Mr. Dubedat. My fees will come to more than that. He also retrieves his hat. Well, of all the mean, I'd let myself be shot sooner than do a thing like that. I consider you've stolen that drawing. So we've converted you to a belief in morality after all, eh? Yea. I'll do another one for you, Walpole, if you'll let me have the ten you promised. Very good. I'll pay on delivery. Oh, what do you take me for? Have you no confidence in my honour? None whatever. Oh, well. Of course, if you feel that way. You can't help it. Before you go, Sir Patrick, let me fetch Jennifer. I know she'd like to see you, if you don't mind. And now, before she comes in, one word. You've all been talking here pretty freely about me. In my own house, too. I don't mind that. I'm a man, and I can take care of myself. But when Jennifer comes in, please remember that she's a lady, and that you are supposed to be gentlemen. He goes out. Well! He gives the situation up as indescribable, and goes for his hat. Damn his impudence! I shouldn't be at all surprised to learn that he's well-connected. Whenever I meet dignity and self-possession without any discoverable basis, I diagnose good family. Diagnose artistic genius, B.B. That's what saves his self-respect. The world is made like that. The decent fellows are always being lectured and put out of countenance by the snobs. I am not out of countenance. I should like, by Jupiter, to see the man who could put me out of countenance. Jennifer comes in. Ah, Mrs. Dubidot, and how are we today? Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Sir Patrick. Oh, life has been worth living since I have known you. Since Richmond I have not known a moment's fear. And it used to be nothing but fear. Won't you sit down and tell me the result of the consultation? I'll go, if you don't mind, Mrs. Dubedat. I have an appointment. Before I go, let me say that I am quite agreed with my colleagues here as to the character of the case. As to the cause and the remedy, that's not my business. I'm only a surgeon, and these gentlemen are physicians and will advise you. I may have my own views, 
In fact, I have them, and they are perfectly well known to my colleagues. If I am needed, and needed I shall be finally, they know where to find me, and I am always at your service. So, for to-day, good-bye." He goes out, leaving Jennifer much puzzled by his unexpected withdrawal and formal manner. "'I also will ask you to excuse me, Mrs. Dubedat.' "'Are you going?' "'Yes. I can be no use here, and I must be getting back. As you know, ma'am, I am not in practice now, and I shall not be in charge of the case. It rests between Sir Colenso Ridgeon and Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington. They know my opinion. Good afternoon to you, ma'am.' He bows and makes for the door. Mrs. Dubedat, detaining him. "'There's nothing wrong, is there? You don't think Lewis is worse, do you?' "'No. He's not worse. Just the same as at Richmond.' "'Oh, thank you. You frightened me. Excuse me.' "'Don't mention it, ma'am.' He goes out. "'Now, Mrs. Dubedat, if I am to take the patient in hand—' "'You? But I thought that Sir Colenso—' Bibi, beaming with the conviction that he is giving her a most gratifying surprise. "'My dear lady, your husband shall have me.' "'But—' "'Not a word. It is a pleasure to me for your sake. Sir Colenso Riggan will be in his proper place, in the bacteriological laboratory. I shall be in my proper place at the bedside.' Your husband shall be treated exactly as if he were a member of the royal family. No gratitude. It would embarrass me, I assure you. Now may I ask whether you are particularly tied to these apartments? Of course, the motor has annihilated distance, but I confess that if you are rather nearer to me it would be a little more convenient. You see, this studio and flat are self-contained. I have suffered so much in lodgings. The servants are so frightfully dishonest. Ah, are they, are they? Dear me. I was never accustomed to lock things up, and I missed so many small sums. At last a dreadful thing happened. I missed a five-pound note. It was traced to the housemaid, and she actually said Lewis had given it to her, and he wouldn't let me do anything. He is so sensitive that these things drive him mad. Ah, oh, uh, yes, say no more, Mrs. Dubedat. You shall not move. If the mountain will not come to Mohammed, Mohammed must come to the mountain. Now I must be off. I will write and make an appointment. We shall begin stimulating the phagocytes on—on—probably on Tuesday next. But I will let you know. Depend on me. Don't fret. Eat regularly. Sleep well. Keep your spirits up. Keep the patient cheerful. Hope for the best. No tonic like a charming woman. No medicine like cheerfulness. No resource like science. Good-bye, good-bye, good-bye. On Tuesday morning send me down a tube of some really stiff antitoxin. Any kind will do. Don't forget. Good-bye, Cully. He goes out. You look quite discouraged again. She is almost in tears. What's the matter? Are you disappointed? I know I ought to be very grateful. Believe me, I am very grateful, but—but— but... Well? I had set my heart your curing Lewis. Well, Sir Rafe Bloomfield Bonington. Yes, I know, I know. It is a great privilege to have him. But, oh, I wish it had been you. I know it's unreasonable. I can't explain. But I had such a strong instinct that you would cure him. I don't—I can't feel the same about Sir Ralph. 
You promised me. Why did you give Lewis up? I explained to you. I cannot take another case. But at Richmond? At Richmond I thought I could make room for one more case. But my old friend Dr. Blenkinsop claimed that place. His lung is attacked. Do you mean that elderly man? That rather— I mean the gentleman that dined with us, an excellent and honest man, whose life is as valuable as anyone else's. I have arranged that I shall take his case, and that Sir Ralph Bloomfield Bonington shall take Mr. Dubedat's. I see what it is. Oh, it is envious, mean, cruel. And I thought that you would be above such a thing. What do you mean? Oh, do you think I don't know? Do you think it has never happened before? Why does everybody turn against him? Can you not forgive him for being superior to you, for being cleverer, for being braver, for being a great artist? Yes, I can forgive him for all that. Well, have you anything to say against him? I have challenged everyone who has turned against him, challenged them face to face to tell me any wrong thing he has done, any ignoble thought he has uttered. They have always confessed that they could not tell me one. I challenge you now. What do you accuse him of? I am like all the rest. Face to face I cannot tell you one thing against him. But your manner is changed, and you have broken your promise to me to make room for him as your patient. I think you are a little unreasonable. You have had the very best medical advice in London for him, and his case has been taken in hand by a leader of the profession, surely. Oh, it is so cruel to keep telling me that. It seems all right, and it puts me in the wrong. But I am not in the wrong. I have faith in you, and I have no faith in the others. We have seen so many doctors. I have come to know at last when they are only talking and can do nothing. It is different with you. I feel that you know. You must listen to me, doctor. Am I offending you by calling you doctor instead of remembering your title? Nonsense. I am a doctor. But mind you, don't call Walpole one. I don't care about Mr. Walpole. It is you who must befriend me. Oh, will you please sit down and listen to me just for a few minutes? He assents with grave inclination and sits on the sofa. She sits on the easel chair. Thank you. I won't keep you long, but I must tell you the whole truth. Listen, I know Lewis as nobody else in the world knows him or ever can know him. I am his wife. I know he has little faults, impatiences, sensitivenesses, even little selfishnesses that are too trivial for him to notice. I know that he sometimes shocks people about money, because he is so utterly above it and can't understand the value ordinary people set on it. Tell me, did he... did he borrow any money from you? He asked me for some once. Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. But he will never do it again. I pledge you my word for that. He has given me his promise, here in this room, just before you came and he is incapable of breaking his word. That was his only real weakness, and now it is conquered and done with for ever. Was that really his only weakness? He is perhaps sometimes weak about women, because they adore him so and are always laying traps for him. And of course when he says he doesn't believe in morality, ordinary pious people think he must be wicked. You can understand, can't you, how all this starts a great deal of gossip about him, and gets repeated until even good friends get set against him. Yes, I understand. Oh, if you only knew the other side of him as I do! 
Do you know, doctor, that if Lewis honoured himself by a really bad action, I should kill myself? Come, don't exaggerate. I should. You don't understand that, you East Country people. You did not see much of the world in Cornwall, did you? Oh, yes. I saw a great deal every day of the beauty of the world, more than you ever see here in London. But I saw very few people, if that is what you mean. I was an only child. That explains a good deal. I had a great many dreams. But at last they all came to one dream. Yes, the usual dream. Is it usual? As I guess. You haven't yet told me what it was. I didn't want to waste myself. I could do nothing myself. But I had a little property and I could help with it. I had even a little beauty. Don't think me vain for knowing it. I always had a terrible struggle with poverty and neglect at first. My dream was to save one of them from that, and bring some charm and happiness into his life. I prayed heaven to send me one. I firmly believe that Lewis was guided to me in answer to my prayer. He was no more like the other men I had met than the Thames Embankment is like our Cornish coasts. He saw everything that I saw, and drew it for me. He understood everything. He came to me like a child. Only fancy, doctor. He never even wanted to marry me. He never thought of the things other men think of. I had to propose it myself. Then he said he had no money. When I told him I had some, he said, Oh, all right, just like a boy. He is still like that, quite unspoiled, a man in his thoughts, a great poet and artist in his dreams, and a child in his ways. I gave him myself, and all I had, that he might grow to his full height with plenty of sunshine. If I lost faith in him, it would mean the wreck and failure of my life. I should go back to Cornwall and die. I could show you the very cliff I should jump off. You must cure him. You must make him quite well again for me. I know that you can do it and that nobody else can. I implore you not to refuse what I am going to ask you to do. Take Lewis yourself, and let Sir Ralph cure Dr. Blenkinsop. Mrs. Dubedat, do you really believe in my knowledge and skill, as you say you do? Absolutely. I do not give my trust by halves. I know that. Well, I am going to test you, hard. Will you believe me when I tell you that I understand what you have just told me? that I have no desire but to serve you in the most faithful friendship, and that your hero must be preserved to you. Oh, forgive me. Forgive what I said. You will preserve him to me. At all hazards. She kisses his hand. He rises hastily. No, you have not heard the rest. She rises too. You must believe me when I tell you that the one chance of preserving the hero lies in Lewis being in the care of Sir Rafe. You say so. I have no more doubt. I believe you. Thank you. Goodbye. She takes his hand. I hope this will be a lasting friendship. It will. My friendships end only with death. Death ends everything, doesn't it? Goodbye. With a sigh and a look of pity at her which she does not understand, he goes. End of Act 3